Hi there, my name is Paddy Butler, and this podcast is brought to you from Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. Today's guest is a leading light in the vanguard of experimental fiction. Announcing her credentials with her 2014 novel, Department of Speculation, this year, Jenny O'Phil followed up with a marvelously rich and comic tour de force. Her new novel, Weather, captures with sublime wit and technical prowess the thinking, breeding mind of its central character, Lizzie. Before we join Jenny down the line in New York, it's also worth checking out the microfiction of Diane Williams if you're on this ticket. Renata Adler's Speedboat is also a little genre-breaking classic worth checking out. Lastly, I was in my favourite second-hand bookstore the other day, Scoob's Books, and I picked up what looks like a lesser-known gem by Mario Vargas Llosa, called The Real Life of Alejandro Mayata. It looks like a political thriller with a different sort of edge to it, so really looking forward to a little distraction with that one. But now, let's go and chat to the brilliant Jenny O'Phil. Jenny, great to talk to you on the Liberia podcast, and congratulations on your new novel, Weather. Um, Tell us about the novel. How did it come about? Well, the novel came about um, over a series of conversations I was having with a friend of mine who knew a lot more about the climate crisis than I did. And um, I kept wondering, why am I hearing all these doomy facts and I don't feel anything? Mm. I just sort of took them in abstractly. And I started thinking that I wanted to create a character who kind of was in that same state of what I think of as kind of like twilight knowing where, you know, but you're not looking at it directly. Um, so that was the very beginning of it. And I sometimes with my novels, I kind of, it's like one of the starting points is an emotion. Mm. So, with, um, with department, it was really about loneliness, different mm. kinds of loneliness. And with this one, it was really, uh, about dread okay. about not knowing, um, what shape something is going to take. Okay. So um, those were the, the two starting points. Okay, cool. Amazing. And the main character, Lizzie, um, she's a librarian. Um, she's on campus, the university. Um, but her, her I, I guess, you know, she has uh, this interesting outlook on life. And, and I think the novel kind of reflects that at the start. She's got quite a I guess whether it's an intentional or oblique philosophical kind of um, understanding of her reality and of her environment as well. And I guess, you know, the, the novel quite beautifully hints at that, um, you know, through different types of ideas and philosophers. I think I, I, I kind of checked maybe two or three, four, maybe main kind of philosophers who, who, who kind of, reflect that at the start you know she hints at panpsychism a little bit of spinoza existentialism her co-worker takes to carrying x-rays in her purse um which kind of like for me it was kind of almost yeah existential um you know her, her colleague sylvia she she's a lecturer and she talks one of her one of her podcasts or one of her lectures is kind of on deep time which is also this kind of anthropological, I suppose, geographic long-term view of, of, of history. And I, I wonder, could we talk about that a little bit? Is that, is, is it important to, to, 
to you to kind of create, you know, create that architecture at the start, at the beginning to, to understand the character's inner thoughts? Um, I think so. I think that I've just, it reflects my own sort of desire to browse across many disciplines. Um, I went to kind of a crap uh, high school and until I got to college, I never really um, had any access to all these things. I remember getting the course catalog at university and just sort of being like anthropology, Buddhism, you know, history of religion, history of psychology. Um, And that sort of stayed with me. Mm -hmm. And so when I was creating Lizzie and she's a librarian, I wanted to sort of uh, create the sense that she's trying to pull from these little bits of knowledge that she knows and knit them together to understand where she is now. Um, But I also wanted them to come in kind of glancingly. Like, you know, my main sort of project is always to smuggle a philosophical novel into a domestic one. So um, I try to sort of put that side by side with her caretaking of her family and dealing with her brother, who's an addict and, and all the people coming in and out of the library. Yeah, well, it, it is kind of, it, it's subtly done. And I think it kind of reflects what we all do as well, isn't it? Like, you know, a lot of our thoughts are kind of, you know, maybe little philosophical snippets that we've taken on or theological or whatever. It, it's kind of daily life, isn't it? It's, it's, it's us trying to make sense of daily life. And, and I suppose whether we're aware of it or not, we're trying to impose our structure on it, which which you do quite beautifully, no doubt about it. And um, it is it it is quite humor filled as well. And I suppose that's kind of there you are filtering that philosophy through humor. And I and that's a beautiful thing as well. That's her character though coming through as well, isn't it? I think so. And for me humor always serves a really important uh it's meant to be a counterpoint in, in books to the darkness that I'm writing about. Um, and so I feel like when, if it, if it works correctly, then what it does is it, it kind of deflates a moment that otherwise could be too self-serious. It also kind of shows that the narrator can see around herself, can see the own Mm. absurdity of her situation. I mean, at one point after all the sort of prepping she does in doomsday studies, uh, towards the very end of the book, she says, I, I'm out of breath running to catch a bus. I will die early and ignobly, you know, after all <laughs> of that. Because I, I feel like often um, I find that that's the way my thoughts move, yeah. that I sort of sally forth with some um, grandiose idea and then it keeps hesitating and being pulled back and undercut and various things. So I, I tried with this uh, style to yeah. capture more of that movement of thought. Yeah, and it is fragments, isn't it? It's, it's it's kind of, I suppose we're we're so used to this kind of stream of consciousness or interior monologue. Whereas, you know, I, I, even neuroscientists are now thinking, well, is thought is it stream of consciousness? It, it can't be that neat. It it's it, mm-hmm. it is made up of these snippets, isn't it? I think it is, and I, I think that it's certainly the way I learned it in school. When you first see stream of consciousness, it's this—it's it's very much a stream. It's mm. uninterrupted, and often there's no punctuation, or, or we think sort of at its height of something kind of Joycean, um, which is you know what you would aspire to if you were writing perfect uh, stream of consciousness. But for me, I know that my own um, the the way that that I sort of register. Uh, things in in daily life and 
the swings that I feel between thinking of something that is um, seemingly very small mm. and then something that feels like very expansive. Um, they happen quickly mm. and they happen unexpectedly. So with the style I set up, it's trying to show um, on the page kind of how those juxtapositions can happen. Okay, yeah. And it, was that a natural progression towards that or did it take you quite a while to find that out, that form, that style, that way? Well, my first novel, Last Things, it has the same uh, interdisciplinary kind of browsing yeah. and the same stories within stories and it's about extinction and there's lots of... Uh, similar thematic interests. Um, uh, but it is in continuous prose. It is chapters. It is that, um, it was only with department after a failed book in between that was also written conventionally that almost out of desperation, I just thought I'd love to read books that are written in this style. Um, I call them like walking around novels. Why am I not writing one? Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I took a few little bits from the, the old novel and then I, I started over. And so by its nature, it was fragmentary, but I also felt uh, freer okay. and I felt like the ability to bring in um, small bits of other text was, uh, I didn't have to um, create the same kind of bridge. I could make it a, a thought leap instead of a, a circumstance leap of how she would know this or that thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's very well done because the narrative runs through it and is, shall we say, uh, cogent and coherent, but it also challenges narrative as well. And I, I w there's so many examples of, of, of where it does this beautifully, but I, I wonder, could we could we even do a little reading? Um, and I think sure. um, I was thinking page 78, um, the context is actually putting garbage out. <laughs> and uh, where Lizzie uh, comes across her neighbor and they engage in a little bit of chit chat. And I'll let you read away, Jenny. Great. So this all takes place by the garbage chute with one of her least favorite neighbors. Mm. Somehow I have stuffed a two full garbage bag down the chute. I am flushed with triumph as I enter the hallway. Then I see Mrs. Kavinsky by the elevator. She's got a cane now. She slipped and fell while on jury duty. Funny thing is it was a slip and fall case, she tells me and tells me and tells me. Sometimes I bring her books to read. She likes mysteries, she told me. Regular type mysteries. But this last one I gave her was no good, she says. It was all jumbled up. In it, the detective investigated the crime, tracked down every clue, interviewed every possible suspect, only to discover that he himself was the murderer. You don't say. <laughs> Brilliant. Super, super. Um... And yeah, I, I, she, she is one of many characters that orbits uh, Lizzie's life and is, I, I guess, uh, you know, she, 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 she makes up this world again. She's projecting her world, but her world is made up of all these different characters. There's Sylvia, there's Eli, her son, obviously, there's Ben, her husband, then there's Henry, her brother. Um, 
and she's very uh, generous with them, isn't she? Even though, you know, I mean, a lot of them seem to weigh her down as well at the same time, you know? I think we all know someone like Lizzie or might be a Lizzie ourselves, one or the other. Um, I feel like I wanted her to be someone that is always registering other people's um, emotional states. Mm. She's very porous. Uh, whatever's happening uh, with someone gets through to her. And so there's an earlier scene in the novel where she has an argument with her husband because he's very excited that uh, the scaffolding has been taken down off their building after yeah. three years. And she doesn't even notice this. Um, but then later he says something and she mentions, oh yeah, that guy's the drug dealer. Yeah. And she's like, he's like, how could that, what are you talking about? So she, I wanted her to be someone that like is, is almost micro registering what's happening with the people around her. But of course, if you do do that, um, you also take in those emotions and it kind of fills up the space where you yourself might um, ever decompress from that. So I wanted her to be someone that is always uh, worrying about other people. Mm. And one of her concerns at the beginning when she starts working for Sylvia is she sort of is like, what, now I have to worry about the whole world too? You know, I'm supposed to worry about the pine trees and the uh, sea slugs and all, all those kind of things. That's like the last thing she wants is anything else to come into her circle of concern. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting though, I mean... As with your last novel, you know, it was primarily dealing with uh, the the breakup of a, of a marriage, whereas central to this, I think, or the central character, it seems to be, although I, I, I dare not say that, but, you know, her brother is so important mm -hmm. to her. And there mm -hmm. seems to be, uh, that seems to be where her character is invested so much in the sense that she feels so much guilt but you never, you never know exactly why, but it's kind of, it's there, isn't it? It's heavy because she's always there above and beyond. She's there for her brother, isn't she? Well, when I was thinking of how the weather might take form, I kept thinking of this word that we usually use in, in sort of um, blurbs on the back of books, atmospheric. And I was thinking about how to create kind of a sense of something eddying or circling or swirling those different scenes. And one of the things about her brother is because he's in and out of addiction, mm. he's in that loop, which uh, I think, you know, most people understand that, that people in the throes of addiction are often in, where it's like, it seems like you're almost out. The person almost is recovering. And then there's a setback and we go back in. And so I wanted it almost as, a, as an example of like eternal return, that this is a problem that is never probably going to be out of her orbit. She's always going to be called in to save the day. And I also feel like because of the way that she was brought up and her father wasn't around, she mm. was, she's sort of in a parentified role with him. Um, so she, and he thinks of her that way. Mm. I mean, at one point she, she notices that even though he's got a rich girlfriend now and makes more money than she does, he still doesn't pick up the check. It's just assumed that, that she will. Um, and so, yeah, she, but she's also, uh, very torn between how looking after her brother, especially once he relapses, mm. uh, puts in conflict with her own family. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, and I think her husband kind of is, 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 is this amazing character who is, appreciates her so much and is so kind and um, that 
I guess there's a there's a bounty of riches there for her to fall back on, or at least her psychology kind of there. You know, she she portrays that quite a lot. Well, I thought with the husband character that there's a way in which um, if you if you're someone that has your antenna up and you're taking in people's uh, emotional distress signals, the person who isn't sending them out very loudly is the last person you pay attention to. So I wanted there to be a sort of benign neglect there that mm. she's always racing off to help other people um, and not necessarily either noticing or even appreciating what what is going on there. Although I think by the end, it's becoming clearer to her um, you know, what it means to, to take in what's happening with him too and um, yeah. about them together. And she, of course, inherited, inherits this from, from her mother as well, which is beautifully expressed uh, throughout the novel because her mother is that kind of benign individual who helps out people, you know, in her surrounding area. And it, it is, it's a, a very warm quality that is, 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 is there throughout the novel. It's, it is quite beautiful. Um, I wonder, could we talk about uh, your way of working and influences? Um, because I read in an interview before that you, you've, uh, you, you reach far and wide in terms of uh, where you go to for inspiration and who inspires you. And I, and I guess that, again, is reflective of, of, of Lizzie's character. But could we talk a little bit about Brian Eno? Is, I, I think I read somewhere that you, you, you're um, influenced by his working methods, shall we say. Yeah, I use, I, I use oblique strategies. Um, I, I got it as a gift um, from my husband several years ago. And um, especially towards the end of a book, uh, when I'm really trying to figure out how it all goes together. And mm. um, often I'm sort of in, in what feels like I'm, have these little knots that I can't figure out. I can't figure out how to, I've left them all till the end because I couldn't figure them out. Mm. And so I love, I feel like, um, one of the things that oblique strategies, uh, does is it, it's trying to jostle you out of your, uh, received ideas and what you already think is the way that you're going to do it. So one of them might be like gardening, mm. not architecture. To, and that, of course, can be translated like, okay, wait, maybe I'm being too, um, too strict, too schematic. What would it look like if it if it flowed more freely? Mm. Um, and sometimes they're they're very prescriptive. Sometimes they tell you to go outside. Okay. Um, sometimes they're they're uh, quite mysterious. But for me, I had noticed that most of my friends who are visual artists um, or composers that they, that they have this element of chance and they believe in this element of, of chance coming in. And so uh, I just decided that I was going to start incorporating it too. And, um, and it's great. It feels sort of like, um, the equivalent of a religion, but it's art. <laughs> it's like yeah. art oracle. Well, it, it, on that note, uh, visual artists, cause I, I, you know, I find your work is evocative you know it is quite visual in in many ways and i mean there are references to photography as well and uh, i think there's references to film as well in this novel but um you, are there painters of, of of specific interest to you yeah um i mean i uh i never know how to say her name i just went to an exhibit of hers um uh 
Vija Selmans, who paints waves over and over and also stars. Um, I love the feeling um, that her paintings give me of something very uh, sublime, but also kind of inscrutable. Um, and when I went and saw her exhibit, they just had an exhibit at the Met. And I happened to go in the wrong way. I was supposed to go to the top mm. and I went in to, to the end of it. And it turned out her very early works, which is, was a surprise to me, were pictures almost like a TV screen that just had like a little disaster uh, in the okay. corner, like a little bit of a plane or some kind of image of war. And um, so I love that. I was really, um, as a, a teenager, uh, I had a cousin who lived in New York and I was, I remember being very excited by like, um, Robert Rauschenberg and okay. like seeing those kind of collages. That and, makes total and, sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I Amazing. mean, I thought that that was really exciting. And then there's been a lot of photographers, um, over the years that I really loved. Um, what about Joseph Delta? Sorry. Joseph say oh no, yeah, sorry. yeah. 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 Sorry. I was... those pictures of the Roma. Um, at the okay. turn of the century. Um, and they're just amazing. And also um, Sally Mann, Sally who yeah. took these pictures of her own family. Mm. Um, and she was very controversial, but um, because people thought, oh, you're staging your your family and you're, you're re... Uh, but th they're really amazing photos mm. because they take what we... It is easy to overlook um, as the everydayness of them. And they, and they give them through the way she focuses on them, mm -hmm. a sort of uh, un, sort of radiance. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm always looking for the radiant side of of ordinary things, um, and it, maybe the ordinary side of radiant radiant things. Yeah, because there there, there was also a passage in the book which uh, reminded me. It was kind of like um, I had this kind of lightning rod moment where it reminded me of both Magritte and Oliver oh. Sacks. Yeah. Oh, I've read tons of Oliver Sacks. Oh, ah, right. Books. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm obsessed with, uh, yeah. And, and I also read his, um, his sort of big influence was this Russian guy, Luria, okay. um, and who wrote also about people with different brain disorders and what that tells us about language. And he wrote a, a book about a guy who could remember everything mm. and how it basically ruined his life yeah. to have no filter yeah. um of what you're what's important and what's not so yeah i'm always i think if i was better at math i would have liked to have been some kind of uh neuroscientist because i'm fascinated to read it okay. um but i'm horrible at math and i could never have made it even through a beginner course and um the other one magritte is magritte of yeah. interest yeah okay yes, totally um wow well good good catches there um yeah, I think that that juxtaposition and that vaguely uncanny feeling, yeah. um, you know, I think especially with the climate things, there's something very uncanny about it. Very, um, it's familiar and strange at the same time. And it's it's that tree that's blooming before it should. Yes. Um, it's being outside without a coat in January. Okay. Um, yeah. And it's it, all of those kind of moments feel like people like Magritte were painting uh, that feeling. Yes. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Almost out of body experience. Uh, yeah, yeah. Slightly yeah. disassociated yeah. and not the things being, um, it's almost like they're all outlined in space, you know, that yeah. you can, everything is being 
brought uh, Rilke wrote a lot about this. Rilke is a big influence okay. on me, and he was always writing about how if you if you look at something long enough, if you think about something long enough, mm. that it will present itself to you. It will it will introduce itself to you, whatever it is, uh, something. Um, any creature, sentient or even probably non-sentient things, because it's Rilke. Um, but that I always love that idea that there's something to be revealed, and I play with that in the novel with the idea of like the hidden name yes. that animals have, which was the name they had in the Garden of Eden. Yeah, and okay. if you can somehow figure out that name, then they will always do your bidding. <laughs> okay, okay, no, no, that's fascinating. Yeah, no, because it, I was thinking of it in relation to the recovering alcoholic professor who writes a, a, a small poem or a sonnet about, <laughs> uh, about his hat, but then he kind of yeah. jokes that he doesn't know what, what being a hat is like. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's great. I love that. Um, yeah, I wasn't thinking of that in those terms, but I, I sort of see it now. I see the floating hat. Okay, um, right. I, I, I thought, I thought yeah, it was so I was, intentional. I, I was writing that passage, I was thinking of as a university professor's the kind of back and forth that was going on um, between students and professors about, um, well, what you can write about and what you can't. Okay. And some of the older professors were very frustrated by this idea that there was anything off limits. And I was at a, um, I was at a festival, I think, and I heard this kind of uh, blowhard of a of a old poet give a talk, and he said something, and I thought that's what he said. But it wasn't. But it stayed in my mind. Like I've written about a hat, though I've never been a hat. And I thought about it for years. And finally, I thought, like, I'm going to make a scene where that was really what someone said. Oh, amazing! That's so good. Yeah. It's really funny. Um, halfway through the novel, I guess, or I, no, not, not even. Maybe a little bit further. Um, Lizzie's direction uh, moves a little bit, or her perspective moves a little bit, and that's allowed, I guess, because. Her circumstances, unintended uh, consequences of, you know, her, her brother relapsing and also her, her husband just dying to get away on a holiday and he goes away. Um, it, it, it becomes, uh, it, it's so interesting because she's relieved of so many pressures and she gets to go on holidays as well, or at least her mind and her sense of responsibility gets to go on holidays as well. And that's, yeah, could we talk about that a little bit? Because it's kind of interesting from my perspective, because once that happens, actually, her brother takes a backward step in in, mm -hmm. in, in, in the narrative. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's true. Well, what happens during the part where she's left home with um, the her husband is especially does not want to be anymore in the house with uh, her brother on the couch moping around. So he takes the son and they go away. And so there's Lizzie. She's still looking after Henry to some extent, but mm. it's more familiar to her. It's more like the, uh, the years when they were, were younger and, you know, neither of them had responsibilities. Um, and she does go on a sort of responsibility holiday. She meets, uh, uh, someone who's just returned mm. is a war conflict reporter. And she begins to imagine uh, a sort of a life, a totally different life. Um, it's a very, very strong crush, yeah. um, which is mutual, um, but doesn't, uh, you know, later she says it was like a, a wartime um, romance. Yeah. Minus the war, minus the sex. 
<laughs> um, but I felt like I, I think that there's a way in which um, whenever, whenever your regular life drops away, mm. other lives present themselves, mm. uh, they become more um, imaginable, more tenable. Mm. Um, and so she's existing in a kind of limbo space where she's almost been put back 15 years. She's living with Henry in an apartment. She doesn't have a child yeah. at the moment. Um, and so I wanted to kind of explore those moments because I think always the discourse about things like that is very stern, like, oh, that's an emotional affair, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Um, but I also think that those moments of imagination, of, of flirtation, um, are part of what make people able to stay bonded for the long term like that 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 sight of an of an open door makes you not feel locked in well, even it, if you don't walk through it it's it, it's a it's a creative release isn't it essentially that we can we we all we all need whether we're cre whether we define ourselves as creative or not and it seems to me that mm -hmm. that's what she you know it's a, it, it's a small awakening so to speak in the sense that okay the the, the structures that i i have surrounded myself with and inside of my mind and how I think and et cetera, et cetera, which we, I, I guess we all build up over, over years, but then, you know, the important thing essentially is to go out and, and meet people and, and talk to people. Isn't that what that's about? Because she has mm -hmm. so much uh, energy and, and, you know, she, you know, it is a, it is a rebirth for her almost a creative mm -hmm. rebirth, even if she's not, you know, oh, mm -hmm. setting, setting it down on paper or on a canvas. Right. Right. And I did, I mean, with department, um, there was lots of talk about how the main character had originally thought of herself as being an art monster. And I did really want to write this novel about someone that wasn't specifically in, uh, that kind of profession, wasn't an artist, wasn't a writer. Um, didn't have an obvious creative outlet, but the creative outlet was more, mm. um, through her work and through the family and friends and how she, um, cause I think that lots of people that is their life and that, that is what they're making. Um, and, and it's just as interesting and intricate as a lot of pieces of art. So, but with this particular, um, relationship he has, she has with the war reporter, I also wanted to, um, gesture towards that sense of relief when, you find someone who doesn't think that you're overreacting. Mm. Um, a lot of the strange thing about learning about the climate crisis is that for a long time, uh, you know, you're the weirdo, you're mm. the, you're the one. Yeah. Um, and because I'm not much of a, uh, I'm not a scold. So I'm not the person that once I became aware of this was like, don't fly, don't eat me. I myself am a huge hypocrite. So I wasn't that, but I just was like, Oh, oh, I have this dark knowledge I must impart, <laughs> um, uh, which makes you, you know, uh, not so fun at the dinner party. But with when she meets Will, because he's been in all these frightening places, mm. um, he's able to talk to her in a real way about what it means to have your hackles up to know that something is coming, but not yet be there. Okay. Um, and I think that's also a huge relief for her. Um, and the nice thing is that her husband comes around to that too. 
Yeah. Um, sometimes in, a, in, a, in American interviews, they're like, so she's, well, she's quite a neurotic little lady, isn't she? With <laughs> worries about, you know, I'm like, well, it's, it's not really an illegitimate worry to worry about climate change at this point, mm. uh, according to all scientists. And the same thing about the, you know, there's also things about the American election. Mm. And so she also worries about kind of the encroaching uh, authoritarianism. Mm. And she thinks a lot about that. That's why there's things about how will you know if someone will become a good German? So those two yes. threads of, of anxiety, um, you know, he's very much like those, those are reasonable things to worry about. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Your country is not an exception to these things that have happened all over the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah absolutely. Um, okay. So I'm going to ask you a horrible question now. Are you an art monster? <laughs> because you um, because you've coined you've coined the term now you know and it I've is coined the term, yeah I, someone I, told me i should make t-shirts and i should i should uh, but um i am an art monster in not not very much these days i would okay. say um i'm not an art monster in that i definitely do not devote myself to the at the expense of family uh and friends to mm. writing mm-hmm. um so, you know, if I'm an art monster, it's definitely like between the hours of nine to three <laughs> before I go to school pickup. The way in which a little of that remains is that um, when I'm working on a book, especially when I'm like fairly far into it, mm-hmm. um, if circumstances present themselves where I can only work on the book, I don't, I honestly like won't eat, won't remember to do mm-hmm. any of the normal human things like, uh, like quarantine uh, if it were minus the terrible fear that we have right now is sort of a a weirdly, like I often shut myself up to try to finish a part of a book and, and, you know, just eat peanut butter on toast and, uh, and drink for a couple of days and don't, don't come out. Um, so this is a much, uh, scarier version of that, but the art monster in me is kind of once I am able to work and the circumstances have been, um, you know, responsibility, responsibly set up. Yes. Then I, I become sort of, uh, bizarrely focused. Okay. And I guess it's a, it's, it's a tradition or it's an idea that we've become, um, acquainted with anyway, isn't it? Like, I mean, for me, creativity is changing in so many different ways as the political landscape and, you know, uh, catastrophe landscape changes as well. But also I think in recent years, uh, with yourself at the vanguard, there have been so many writers who have been changing that. And I think, and I'd love to hear your opinion on it, but, you know, the, the form in, in which you write, which is, shall we say, to some extent minimal, but goes against the the the, the great big novel. Um, I think mm-hmm. that's part, that could be part of it, but it's not, I mean, I, I mean, it's not that simplistic. I mean, you are mm-hmm. dealing with aesthetics, you, you know, very you know, you are very concerned with that. And, you know, it's not just a response to the big, heavy, masculine, shall we say, novel, mm-hmm. because obviously you've got George Eliot, et cetera, et cetera. But there, there seems to be, there's a massive shift in the discourse, isn't there? I, I think so. And I don't know, sometimes people, when they're talking about, because my books take me a long time, but they're, but they are very short. And so sometimes people ask me about the influence of social media on them. And I'm not on social media, so I don't, it isn't that big an influence. Um, 
But I will say that I think that people's ability to make leaps um, across um, genres, across uh, forms, across that has has actually in in the same way our, our attention span has been shattered. Perhaps our ability to kind of uh, leap forward imaginatively has been expanded. Um, I feel like my writing is considered far less weird and um, you know, then maybe it would have been years ago. And of course there's many people um, have been writing these. One of the unusual things about department was just that a, a major press agreed to publish it. Um, usually books of that nature are published by all these great small presses we mm. have, but not necessarily in the spotlight of uh, the same way. And so I feel like things are changing and I'm, I'm also super fascinated by already um, the the adaptations that humans are making during this crisis we're in right now, the the pandemic, because um, you know the part where the Italians are going out on their balconies and singing to each other, yeah. and the part where people are figuring out like mutual aid societies uh, at a small level. Um, I think it's uh, it's a very beautiful thing in the midst of all of this. Uh, terror to see those kind of adaptations. Um, I mean, of course, the Italians are leading because they're <laughs> they they know how to they know how to bring joy back to life, yeah. no matter what is going on. But I think it's um, you know, there's even like people are doing trying to teach each um, people who run restaurants are trying to repurpose mm-hmm. their uh, places to to feed workers, and 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 there's a there's a spirit right now of of collective um, working for the collective good, Mm. which I think is when I was reading all this disaster psychology for, uh, for weather, you know, people really, really, really want to work for the collective good. If an occasion comes up where they, where they know how to do it, they want to do it mostly. Um, and so I think we're seeing some flowering of that as people prepare. I mean, we're also seeing people, you know, take all the toilet paper and yeah. all the Tylenol. So uh, obviously it's got a flip side, but I think that there's certain, um, there's certain really interesting things that are going on. And to me, this is just, for me, it was like such a fact that is my, up my alley. Uh, someone was speculating that the handshake mm. may actually disappear after this because the handshake originally was to show you didn't have a weapon. Yeah. Um, that's where it comes from. Right. Um, okay. Right. That's what, that's why we have our open hand. And of course we lost that context, uh, you know, over many years and it was just a, just something we did, but it is symbolic of uh, trust. Yeah. Okay. So if, if this infection is spread that way, then the hands and the handshake no longer represent that. Mm. And so may actually fall out of it, it may Use, fall yeah. out of the that we do which i thought was just kind of amazing you know something that would last that long and uh, who knows if it will but but um i always like to learn why did we why do we do those things to begin with they're always interesting to me yeah yeah no absolutely i didn't know that fact actually and also you 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 talk about clapping in in uh, weather as well which is kind of yeah it's kind of uh, prescient as well to some extent i guess um, last, last couple of questions, if I may, um, 
the 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 landscape there in terms of over your side of the water in terms of journalism and high quality journalism where we get our information i think is represented by two um very strong for me personally uh journalists the the, the new yorker and the new york review of books i mean mm-hmm. I, I just um you know respectively love the long form the two best. <laughs> yeah absolutely fantastic and I'm, I'm sure there's lots of other small journals there as well do you see a future for those um a long-term future or do you think they are still under huge threat i hope so i hope so i'm actually doing a review right now for the new york review of books um the first one i've done for them okay. um i i and I think they're going to start doing a sort of pandemic journal where people from all, all over write, write little things about it. Um, I think that what's, what's hard right now is people remembering that you have to, um, that you should pay for good journalism. Mm. Um, because I mean, I actually, what I read as my newspaper is the guardian. And after I did that for a while, that's how I, basically got up to speed on the climate crisis. That's how I know what's happening in the larger world. Um, I was like, I need to subscribe. Like mm-hmm. I can't, I'm, this isn't, I have to, I have to do this. And, and so periodically, I think if you're able to do a sort of check of, am I putting my money uh, in towards the things that I most revere? Mm-hmm. So do I have a subscription to that? And and, and, and do I need this subscription to Amazon, which is, is a, the opposite, which is destroying um, many things that I think are important. Um, and so I think that these things will survive if we remember that, they're, um, that there's people behind them and, and that they're not just uh, dropped from the sky. Because, you know, into our mailboxes. Yeah, because I was reading actually in the New York Review of Books to, uh, an article on the survival of uh, journalism in general, good journalism, long form journalism. And uh, by the end of it, he um, recommended, you know, government uh, stepping in. Well, not directly. I mean, that's that's complex in mm-hmm. itself as well. I mean, we have the BBC here as well, but just some sort of uh, indirect funding uh, to, to, mm-hmm. to help them. Um, I think that's probably. The I'm all for that. Yeah, I, I think um, because uh, I, you know his um, his. I mean, uh, we have public television here, so you know it's a, it's a reasonable thing to um, yes. yeah to do that to have. But um, you know, right now we're just when when the Republicans are in charge of uh, things, the uh, all arts funding and the things like that go go out the window because it's not considered you know aligned with their values. They think it's sort of. Um, it's a luxury. Yeah, it's, it's a luxury. Yeah. Although I really, I, I honestly think that it's not a luxury right now at all. I think, um, you know, uh, it's interesting that experts in this particular situation have come back into fashion. Oh um, my I mean, gosh. Yeah. The biggest turnaround you know, ever. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, suddenly, you know, you're hanging out on epidemiology, Twitter, you know, yeah. like, trying to yeah. figure out everything, but, um, so who knows what, I think that will be another interesting thing. Like the, the governments that you have and that, that, that we have right now, um, uh, you know, this, this idea that like, maybe that's elitist to look to experts. Um, but you know, with things like climate change and things like this pandemic, um, science is, is the, that's how we know how to act. That's how we know 
um, how to keep safe and how to keep others safe. And so I do feel like, um, you know, maybe making visible the importance of scientists, the importance of like a working healthcare system, the importance too of like, all the people that work behind the scenes doing delivery, doing packing of food, mm. delivering, waiting on you, um, you know, suddenly those people are frontline workers. Yes. And and those of us who aren't, we, I think we, I hope that that visibility remains there after this, that we remember um, that kind of interconnectedness, because I think it will help us as a people with future emergencies. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, last question, just for our listeners. Is there anything you've read recently or in, or in the last, I don't know, few months that you, you harshly recommend or something that's really caught you, grabbed you? Um, yes, I read uh, The Little Virtues by Natalia Ginsburg, which is beautiful. It's a book of little essays. It's also written about wartime, uh, partly. But it's written with this kind of uh, beautiful... Uh, detail, but also stoicism, um, which I found to be uh, very beautiful. Um, I'm also reading some um, poetry by uh, C.A. Conrad. Um, he has a, a book called A Beautiful Marsupial Afternoon, okay. um, where he, I know, <laughs> where he, uh, That's he does. That's very his, you, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's very fun. So um, that was like, I did find on my bookcase today and I thought I'm not going to read this. I was like, I can't believe I already own this. Murderous Contagion, A Human History of Disease. I was okay. like, ooh, that, was, that one's going to wait. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yes, so that's what I'm reading right now. Brilliant. Thank you so much for being on the Live Real podcast. Thanks so much for having me and uh, stay well. Awesome stuff from my guest, Jenny O'Field. Delightfully open and so generous with their insight with regards to her working methods. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do give us the five-star treatment on iTunes. Always helps. See you next time. <laughs>